Well, hello all, welcome. Happy Labor Day weekend, and uh, thankful you guys are here. Uh, as Jerry mentioned, it's a pretty exciting weekend uh, just for us as a church, because uh, uh, September 1, 2009 is our, kind of was our official launch date, and uh, I was telling the folks in the first service what uh, is really encouraging to me is, even if today was our last day, even if today we told you, hey, we're closing up shop, as it were, uh, we would have already enough uh, just incredible testimonies of what God's done in, in people's lives. Uh, a lot of people have met God. A lot of people have been reconnected uh, with God. A lot of relationships have just been healed. Like God's done some really amazing things. And what's exciting to me is today is not our last day. Uh, in many ways, I feel like uh, we're just getting going as a church. And so uh, if you've been here for the whole time, three years, and even uh, before that, or if, even if you've just been coming for the last since the summer maybe, or, or just even the past few weeks, I'm really thankful that you're here and that you're in a good place. And I don't mean that we're a perfect church and that has everything figured out, but uh, I'm pretty excited about where we're going as a church because we're really trusting and believing and asking God just to do even more. Uh, and we're going to be that church that just asks big, plays big, uh, and just trusts that God's going to do uh, great things in our midst. And I hope a year from now, our testimony, your testimony would actually be Wow, what an another amazing year, not of things we've done or things we've accomplished, but what an amazing year of how we saw God uh, work in our midst. Uh, as Jeremy mentioned, this is uh, our final day in Colossians, and I don't know if it feels like this for you, but uh, the summer has come and gone. It's hard to believe that it's already September, and uh, I'm assuming for many of you it's hard to believe that uh, you're back to either school or back just to normal kind of routine. Um, but for me, as I've considered just the summer's gone by fast, it's hard to believe that we're at the end of Colossians. Uh, it's gone by super quick, but I'm excited uh, about what we're going to be talking uh, about today. Uh, if you did not pick up, I've got just a few copies of this, but uh, this book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything by Tully and Chavinjian, uh, has been super helpful, very encouraging, very challenging, very inspiring. Uh, and as we've walked through this, we've we use this as certainly an aid or a help, but our two primary questions that we've been asking uh, throughout this series is simply this. Uh, what do we learn about Jesus? So every single week that we looked at Colossians, what are we learning about Jesus? Of who he is and what he's like and, and what did he do and what did he accomplish and what does that mean? So our heart was, what do we know, what do we learn about Jesus? Our second question was taking, well, since we've learned this, since we now know this, what do we do with this knowledge that we have of who Jesus is? In other words, how do we apply what we know about Jesus to how we live? And what we've repeatedly said from the stage, whether it was me preaching or somebody else, through repetition, we've encouraged and challenged, if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you know Jesus, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you have absolutely everything. And this was uh, Tullian's quote that uh, we've mentioned many times of Jesus plus nothing uh, equals everything. Uh, you, hopefully you're familiar with that quote, but he says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's another way of saying if you have Jesus, you have everything. And if you don't have Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, even if you think you have everything that the world has to offer, even if you have the money, the status, the fame, the degrees, the, 
the wealth, as it were, uh, the accolades, even if you had all of that, the best of what the world has to offer, if you don't have Jesus, even though you have all of that, at the end of the day, you don't have anything. And so through repetition, we've been saying again and again, if you have Jesus, you have absolutely everything. So today, kind of doing a, uh, we're looking at Colossians chapter 4, but as I've really considered where we've been, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, through all of Colossians, uh, this has been, bless you, my conviction, my challenge, my encouragement is simply this. And this is really summing up uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4 is simply this. Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. In light of who Jesus is, in light of what Jesus has accomplished. So when I say in light of who Jesus is, that he is literally God in flesh, that he came to restore and reconcile and redeem a sinful humanity back to a right relationship with God, where you and I could have peace with God. We could have friendship, fellowship with God. We could talk with God. We could know God and be known by God. That's what Jesus has done for us. So in light of all of who Jesus is, he is worthy of all of you all of the time. This is uh, something Tullian actually said uh, early on in his book. He said, the Lord's everything is worthy of our everything. Jesus became nothing so that we might have everything. Because of the gospel, we've come to see that he alone is worthy to receive our everything. Because of who Jesus is, Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. So let me just launch or start with this question. Does he have you? Does Jesus have you? And I don't mean just like part of you or some of you, a fraction of you, a third, a half of you. Does Jesus right now where you are, does he have all of you? Or does Jesus just kind of have parts of you? And there's still other parts that you're kind of giving to other things or other people. Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. So does he have you? Does he have all of you mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally? Does he have all of you? And then the second question is, does he have all of you all of the time? Or does he only have you some of the time, some of you some of the time when it's just when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when it's easy? Does he just have you like on Sunday? Like, well, that's just, that's me and Jesus day. That's the day we hang out. That's the day Jesus and I do our Jesus thing. And then Monday through Saturday, it's like, it's me and my thing. So it's not just, does he have all of you? Does he have all of you all of the time? What I've learned, and I feel like I'm learning afresh and learning almost for the first time, is Jesus is worthy of me, all of me, all of the time. Now, I think many here today, you'd mentally agree with this. You would mentally hear this, intellectually hear this, and you'd be like, yeah, I agree that in light of Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished, what he's done, all of me, all of the time. And there's an intellectual agreement with that statement. And I like how actually Tullian uh, said it in his book. There's often a, a divorce, as it were, between what's in our heads and what's in our hearts. So what we know, what we agree, what we believe with or believe intellectually doesn't always manifest itself in how I live. 
It doesn't always show up in my day-to-day life. Tolian said it like this. I'm always amazed at how hard it is for my heart to embrace what my head affirms. Let me just stop there. Always amazed at how hard it is for my heart to embrace what my head affirms. I believe with all my mind that Jesus plus nothing equals everything and that everything minus Jesus equals nothing. I agree with everything the Bible teaches about Jesus and about our sin and about God's grace and about the gospel. The problem is when I examine my heart honestly, I find many other things smaller than Jesus that I depend on on a daily basis to make my life go. That last part, the problem is when I examine my heart honestly, I got it straight up here. Like I agree. Michael, you say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen. I'm on board. I'm totally with you. I agree with that. The problem is when I examine my heart and I want you to examine your heart, I find many other things smaller than Jesus that I depend on on a daily basis to make my life go. Now, I don't know about you, whether you read that before, you're seeing this for the first time, but when I read that, it really resonates with me. Of I can raise my hand and say, that's totally me. I know what it's like to have it straight here, but then in my life application, it's often very different. I see that I give myself to smaller things, meaning things less than Jesus, to find or to get what Jesus has already given me. Well, as we finish our study in Colossians, looking at uh, really all of chapter 4, I want to answer the question, if Jesus is worthy of all of us, all of the time, what does that functionally look like? If Jesus is worthy of all of you, all of the time, all of me, all of the time, what does that functionally look like? I don't want me personally, and I don't want any of you to have it straight on your head But then in your life, it's very crooked. Your life is very cracked or your life is very confused. I want what you know up here to show up in day-to-day life. So the question that we're answering is, how does this functionally work? Meaning, if Jesus is worthy of all of me all the time, what does that life look like? And the answer is found really in Colossians 4. And we're going to walk through three things that Colossians 4 teaches us. Number one is simply this. It's a life that is dependent on Jesus. It is a life that is dependent on Jesus. If Jesus is worthy of you, all of you, all of the time, and you want to know what functionally that looks like, functionally that means your life is absolutely, completely dependent on Jesus in order to to live that life. This is what Paul says in Colossians 4, uh, starting verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us, that God, may be o- that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Really challenging verses there, but what Paul is telling us is, if you're going to walk with Jesus, all of you, all of the time, it's got to be a life that's really dependent on Jesus, and the way we are dependent is prayer. Now, you don't have to raise your hands on this question, but how many of you love depending on other people? How many of you, you just, you're that guy, you're that girl who just loves going around and saying, hey, I just can't do this. Can you do this for me? 
I'm totally weak and I, don't, I, can't, I just can't do it. So I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to venture to say that none of us are naturally inclined to go to other people and say, I just need to depend on you. Everything in us is very self-reliant, self-dependent. Our problem is because we're self-reliant, self-dependent, we take that same approach to our relationship with God. If I'm going to walk with God, all of me, all the time, I cannot do that apart from God. I, I can't live that relationship with, with God out apart from Him. And what Paul teaches us, he exhorts us to be people who pray, to be people of prayer. Uh, in other words, we are to be people who are dependent completely on Jesus. What I love what he does here in, in these few verses in Colossians 2 through 4 is he walks through, this is what it means and looks like to be dependent on Jesus in prayer. And we're right, mentioned four things that Paul mentions or highlights. The first one is this, that we would be steadfast in prayer, meaning we are people who are persistent in prayer, meaning we're, we don't stop praying, praying meaning we're conversation is constant with God. It's ongoing. It just doesn't stop. Prayer doesn't look like, well, I did my five minutes in the morning, I did my five minutes at lunch, and I did my five minutes at dinner. Steadfast or persistent in prayer means we pray without ceasing. The conversation just does not stop. Now, you might not be talking to God the whole day, but the point is, dependent on God, God is talking to you throughout the day. This is prayer. It's a conversation that we are having with God, both speaking but also listening. And Paul says, he exhorts us, be steadfast, be persistent, pray without ceasing. Now, as I was really thinking about, <clears throat> why do we do that? Like the, My question that I, I wrote down was, like God can clearly answer our prayer on the spot. We can ask God, and God can say, done. He's, he's God. He's got the power to do that. He could answer any one of your prayers at the moment it flies out of your mouth. At the moment you even think it and didn't even get to speak it, God can answer that prayer. So why doesn't he? If God can do that, why does he tell us, no, be persistent in prayer. Be uh, be steadfast. Don't give up in praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Why does God tell us to do that? And as I've been thinking about it, the two thoughts I came uh, up with is praying steadfastly or persistently is a tangible reminder to me that I am dependent on God for all things at all times. By praying again and again and again, continually, persistently, steadfastly, I am reminded that I am dependent on God to live the life that God has for me. If I only just prayed once and then walked away, I would start to get the idea that I can do this. I don't need to depend on God. I'll just check in with him when I need something. But God says, be steadfast in prayer. Be persistent. Why? It teaches us how to be dependent on God in all things, in all, in all times, in all places. The second thing I was thinking about of why does he tell us to be steadfast is Praying persistently, it actually changes me. Bless you. Praying persistently, praying steadfastly, is not about trying to beg God to get him to do what you want him to do. Praying steadfastly, persistently, is not about 
trying to get God to change his mind. Praying persistently or steadfastly, when I'm doing that, what's actually happening is I'm getting changed. As I'm praying persistently, something is happening to me. Namely, I'm learning how to be the man who is dependent on God in all things. So Paul says, be steadfast in prayer. But then he says uh, in verse 3, uh, verse 2, uh, pray, uh, or pray watching or staying alert. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Paul says uh, in verse 3, steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. What does it mean to be watchful, as it were, uh, in prayer? What are you watching for? What are you looking for? This is, again, not a perfect image to paint in your head, but a drive-by shooting. Someone literally drives by, sprays bullets, and doesn't even stick around to see the devastation or the consequences of what he's done. He's gone. She's gone. But yet people are left in devastated. Many of our prayers kind of look like that. They're drive-by prayers. We, we say something, and before we've even finished the prayer, finished what we're asking for, we're long gone. We've moved on. And what it means to pray watchfully is pray and then watch. What is what's God going to do? How is God going to respond? What is God going to react? How might God answer? Many of us have a hard time seeing God respond because we're just not there for it. We don't watch. We're not waiting for how God is going to speak or respond to the very things that we've prayed. Um, so praying watchfully means stick around. Stick around and see what God's going to do. You're praying steadfastly. Praying watchfully means you literally watch to see how God responds. Second thing of what does it look like to watch, well, literally watching means you stay alert. You literally stay alert to the attacks of the enemy. God has an enemy. His name is Satan. Satan is our enemy, and his attack against us is to distract us, to deceive us, to ultimately derail what God is trying to do. And so what it means to be watchful in prayer is to watch for the attacks, the lies, the deception, um, the deceit, the derailment, so to speak, of the enemy. Jesus actually said this to his disciples in uh, Mark 14. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. I don't know how it works for you when you're praying, but it's really hard for me to sin and pray at the same time. Like when I'm really, I'm talking about when I'm praying, it is really challenging for me to actually do both. And the reality is we get hit with hundreds, if not thousands of temptations every single day. But as I'm steadfast in prayer and I'm watching in prayer, that's a way to ward off or fight off the temptations that we often give into. Paul goes on and says, be steadfast, be watchful. And then he says an interesting thing, be thankful. With thanksgiving, what does it mean or look like to be thankful in prayer? Now, let me just ask you this question of what does it look like to be thankful? Does it amaze you that you get, you get to talk to God? Is it amazing to you that the creator, sustainer of all things, universe and all things in the universe, actually wants to talk to you? 
that he's invited you, one of seven billion people on this planet, that he's invited you to talk with him. Is it amazing to you that God is not indifferent to you? That God's posture towards you is, I don't care about you. I don't care about your problems, your anxieties, your worries, your fears, your situation. Isn't it amazing to you that God's attitude towards you is not like, hey, I'm pretty busy. There's seven other billion people on this planet who've got the same issues you do. Take a number. When I'm ready for you, I will call you. What it means to be thankful in prayer is that we approach prayer with a sense of humility, but a sense of awe and wonder of, I am talking to God. God is enabling me to actually hear his voice, to hear from him. When's the last time you maybe opened a prayer and said this, Dear God, thank you that I get to do what I am now doing, praying to you. What an awesome thing. What it means to be thankful in prayer is we come to God with a sense of, holy um, cow, this is amazing. Not holy cow, I couldn't think of. Holy something, this is awesome. I get to talk to the creator and sustainer of all. I like how Sam Storms wrote a great commentary devotional on Colossians, said this, Thankfulness turns the human soul toward heaven and away from self. Thankful prayer is theocentric prayer. When I'm thankful in prayer, my, my attitude, my posture, my, my position, as it were, is theocentric. It is God-centered, God-focused, rather than prayer that is consumed self-centric. It's, it's all about me. Paul says, pray persistently or steadfastly. Pray Watch, pay attention. And then thirdly, Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. And then what I, fourth thing he says is be specific in your prayer. He says, while you're doing that, he says in verse uh, four, or in verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door uh, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So while you're doing that, Paul says, would you pray for us? Would you be specific in your prayers, as it were? Rather than just kind of praying randomly, Paul models for us, no, go to God and be absolutely specific in what it is you are praying. Now, two observations I make about what Paul is doing here is no one is beyond asking for prayer. I don't know if the Colossians responded like, guys, the apostle Paul just asked us to pray for him. I have to believe that there was a sense of, wow, that is an awesome privilege that this man, who is just being used by God all over the known world to plant churches and lives changed, this man has literally just asked us to pray for him. I imagine it was quite a privilege. Paul was giving them the opportunity to participate with him in what God was doing. Ever prayed for someone and days, weeks, months later, maybe years later, they came to you and said, hey, you know what? This amazing thing just happened. And you're like, wow, I've been praying for that. Was your attitude when you heard that news like, oh, no big deal? Or was your attitude like, wow, 
I got to be part of that in a small way, but I got to be part of that because I was participating with you by praying for you. Paul, again, just by example, asks for prayer. No one is beyond prayer. I think what happens is we're too prideful to ask other people to pray for whatever the need might be, whatever the concern might be. And that's denying other people an opportunity to work with God, participate with God, and what God is doing. Paul asks for prayer. Now, I'm not going to make a statement here, and I don't want you to read into this, that it's wrong to ask God uh, you know, to, to help you in your worry or your anxiety or your fear or whatever. God repeatedly, Old Testament, New Testament, tells us to come to him with all things. But what I want to make note of is know what Paul doesn't ask for. The man is in prison. He doesn't ask, hey, would you pray that God would do like this wicked, awesome jailbreak? Like, he doesn't pray, like, God, would you pray that God would bring to justice the, the men who put me here in jail? He's not praying for personal need or personal gain, even though his need in, was great. He was in prison. He had many needs. What Paul specifically prays for is an opportunity to declare the gospel. Now, the very thing that landed this man in prison was preaching the gospel. And his prayer to the church in Colossae was, would you pray that I'd have even more opportunities to do the very thing that actually landed me here in prison? That was his prayer request, that God would open the doors, that God would give me opportunities to, to, uh, to preach, to talk with others about Jesus. Now, as I was sitting with this, I was really hit with how often I've prayed and how often I've heard other people pray of, God, would you change my situation? Would you change my circumstance? Would you get me out of this? Would you get me out of here? And as I was thinking about it, I, Paul didn't do that. I'm here. So God, while I am here, will you use me while I am in here to make much of you? Will you use me where I am to talk about Jesus, to proclaim, to preach Jesus? So my challenge, my encouragement to you would be, rather than praying and asking God to get you out of where you don't want to be, rather than asking God, like, I can't stand my job, I can't stand my career, I can't stand this, and I want this change, and I want it. Rather than praying that, why don't you pray, God, you've got me here, I trust that, I know that, I believe that. So as long as I'm here, would you open the door for me to talk about you with people who don't know who you are? That was his prayer. And I love how he, he the second prayer request, pray that I'd make it clear. Pray that I would preach and talk about Jesus with absolute clarity, confidence, and conviction. Paul knew the weight of the message. He knew the importance of the message. And Paul did not want to be a hindrance to the message going forth. He didn't want to talk about Jesus in a way that would confuse people. It was not necessarily, he was fine with challenging people, but his prayer was, God, pray for me that I'd say it clearly. This is something I, I've not done a good job in asking you to do for me or for the other leaders in this church, specifically on Sundays. I can't recall a time where I've invited you as a church 
to, to pray for me. That I would say, your prayer would be, God, would you bless Michael today? That he would say it clearly. He would say it accurately. He would say it with confidence and conviction. God, would you help Michael to speak effectively? So that those that would be here, maybe there would be people who have no idea who Jesus is. So would you speak through him with clarity and conviction so that someone might come to know Jesus? I don't know if you pray like that on your way to church, but I invite you to do it. Whether it's me speaking, one of our uh, Jeremy or Paul or some other of our leaders, would you pray? And this is not just for us. Would you pray that for each other? What an amazing, bless you, thing that you could do for each other, whoever it might be. Would you bless them in their workplace today? That there would be an opportunity. And when they have that opportunity, man, they would say it with confidence, clarity, and conviction. That, God, you would use them to encourage, to inspire, to bless. Paul says, prayer, be steadfast, persistent to be watchful, to be thankful, and then to be specific. Now, as I've just sat with those few verses, Jesus is worthy of you, is, is worthy of all of you, all of the time. And if you would live that life, all of you, all of the time, it is a life that is dependent on Jesus. And we depend on Jesus through prayer. That is the way we depend on Jesus. We need God to help us walk with him. And we do that through steadfast prayer. We do that through watchful prayer. We do that through thankful prayer. And we do that through specific prayer. If Jesus is worthy of all of you, all of the time, it looks like a life that's dependent on him. And then secondly, I encourage you to write this down, is it's a life that is continually engaging others who don't know Jesus. If Jesus is worthy of all of you, all of the time, what does that life look like? It looks like a life that is continually engaging the world around you, engaging others who don't know who Jesus is. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6 says this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Outsiders means people outside the church, people who are not of the family of God, people who have not placed their faith in Christ. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul here in these two verses exhorts the Colossians and us as well to act wisely towards outsiders. Why? Why does he say act? Why does he challenge them, exhort them of be a people, be a church that acts wisely? really want you to... Not just sit with this, but really think and consider the weight of this, of the why. The answer is people's impression of God will largely be shaped by their interactions with people who claim to know God. People who do not know God, their image, their idea of what God is like will largely be shaped, will largely be shaped by their interactions with people who claim to know God. Two things will happen when someone who does not know God interacts with someone who does. One will be, if God's like you, I don't want anything to do with him. Because I see in you, you're angry, you're bitter, you're like mean, you're hard-hearted, you're not kind, you're not 
if God, you claim to know God, have a relationship with God, well, if God's any reflection of what you're like, <clears throat> I don't, I don't want to know him. Or <clears throat> people would say, wow, if God is anything like you are, because you're kind, you're gracious, you're patient, you're compassionate, you're generous, you're available. If God is anything like you, I'm curious to know more. <clears throat> I'm curious to know more. If, if you're like this and you say you know God, then I want to know more about this God that you know because I like you. You're a nice, generous, tender-hearted, kind-hearted, selfless person. What's not lost on me and what I don't want to be lost on you is this. Every opportunity with every person we come across <clears throat> is an opportunity to bring that person closer to God. Every opportunity with every person we come across is an opportunity to bring that person closer to God. In other words, every encounter has the potential to be soul-saving. That, to me, is awesome. It's heavy. It's inspiring to know that every conversation that I have, every interaction that I have with every person that I will come across in any given day is an opportunity to win that person to God. Every opportunity has a potential to be a soul-saving moment. Wrote it down like this, by your words and actions, someone who thinks that God is indifferent or does not care may have their opinion of God changed because you care deeply. By your words and actions, someone who thinks that God is cruel or unloving may have their opinion of God changed because you're gracious, kind, and loving. By your words and actions, someone who is not interested at all in God, completely indifferent towards Him, may have a change of heart because they see and they hear the difference God is making in your life. Every opportunity, every conversation, every interaction, every reaction is an opportunity for you to draw someone closer to God, to win someone towards God, to plant seeds towards God. Every opportunity has the potential to be a soul-saving moment. Now, I wanted to really drive this home because if you really think about just your average day, you interact with a lot of people. You interact with a lot of people. I'm talking about people that you might stand in line with at a restaurant, in, the, in a grocery store, people that you work with, people that you live with. We interact with a lot of people every single day. And I wanted you to know that every conversation, whether that be live in person, whether that be via text, via email, via Twitter, via Facebook, via Pinterest, via any digital communication, every Every conversation is an opportunity for God to use you to draw somebody closer to God. Paul specifically says, because of that truth, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. And he specifically says, let your speech be gracious. Let your speech be gracious. Meaning you talk, when you talk, you talk in a winsome way. 
Like you're a pleasure to listen to, as it were. Your speech is just full of kindness. It's full of compliments. It's full of encouragements. You are gracious in your speech. I've seen many times someone who is just really hard towards God meet someone who is just really gracious and their heart is softened. Not because they had some great theological argument and kind of won them over that way, but because they were just gracious. They were nice. They were kind. Seminary professor told our class once, the aim is not to win arguments, but it's to win people. The aim is not to win arguments, but it's to win people. I've seen too many times people say the right thing. They say the truthful thing, but the way they say it is just cruel. It's arrogant. It's unkind. Paul says, be gracious in your speech. Paul also says, be gracious, but also let your words, they should be salty. It's a great word picture of salty speech means the way you talk, the, the way you ca- carry on a conversation, you actually are creating a thirst in other people for more. That we would be gracious in our speech, that we would be salty in our speech. Our conversations just leave people wanting more. How do you be a salty person? How do you have salty conversations as it were? Well, these are three things that help me. Be thoughtful in the questions that you actually ask people. I guess I should back up. Actually, be one that asks people questions. And I know for those of you who know me, like Michael, that's just your personality. You just drill people with questions. Well, I learned it from Jesus, so it's biblical. Be thoughtful in the questions that you ask people. And if you're thinking, well, I just run out of questions. I don't know what questions to ask and that that would be thoughtful or engaging or encouraging. Well, guess what? Because you're a person who is living completely dependent on Jesus, that means you're praying all the time. Because you're praying all the time, well, guess what? God's speaking to you all the time. And when God speaks, he's helping to inform the conversations that you're having, including the questions you could be asking. If you watch me closely when I'm talking to you, I'm listening to you, but I'm also listening to God. God, what question could I ask? What question could I ask that would be helpful, that would be beneficial, that would be challenging? Another thing that would be helpful in salty conversations is just be willing and available to talk to people. Too many people consider other people a nuisance and an annoyance. There is not one person who is a nuisance or annoyance or should be viewed as such. That anyone. Telemarketers. Now, I know you think that's like, well, telemarketers, they just bug me. Well, they might bug you, but if you're going to be biblical, meaning all of you all of the time, that means even when someone you don't want to talk to, you find yourself talking to them, well, guess what? That is an opportunity from God for you to somehow encourage that person or bless that person or inspire that person. So, hypothetically, the telemarketer calls you. You've got two options. You can just be rude. Why? Well, because they're calling you and they're a nuisance and they're bugging you. Well, that somehow doesn't resonate with me, at least, of, of being gracious. You might not have to listen and buy whatever they might be trying to sell, but that doesn't mean you have the right to be rude. That doesn't mean you have the right to be arrogant. 
or to view or treat them as somehow a nuisance to you. Now, I know I'm probably a little bit weird, but I actually enjoy talking to telemarketers. Well, you called me, so let's talk. Willing and available to talk with people. And a third thing I'd share with you of what it looks like or means to be salty is actually listen to what people are saying. Rather than be the person that just is not listening, but really just waiting for them to stop talking so you can share your opinion or share your thought, being salty means I'm actually listening to everything you say in hopes that I can be helpful, in hopes that I can be encouraging, in hopes that God might use me in this opportunity to somehow bless, inspire, or just love you. Paul goes on in verse 6 and just says, be ready. You've got to be ready. You have to be ready to answer the questions that people will have. Now, what I love about what Paul's doing, if you're gracious in speech, you're making the most of every opportunity, you're gracious in speech, you're salty in conversation, well, guess what's going to happen? People will start to ask you questions. I've heard people say, well, I'm just not prepared. I don't know what to say. So, therefore, I'm not going to engage people. I won't talk to people because what if they ask me, well, sir, how do you justify evil suffering in this world? If God is so good, how could he allow people to suffer? I don't know how to answer that, so I'm just not going to talk to people because I'm afraid that they might stump me. Can I just say, people are not looking to play Bible Jeopardy with you, but we have answers to tough questions like that. They're not looking to stump you or trick you. But Paul says, be answered, prepared, and ready to give an answer. Can I just tell you, generally speaking, most of the questions that you're going to get asked, I'll give you an example. This just happened this week. Uh, if you've never eaten at Olympia Roast Beef, it's a great place. I try to eat there at least as many times a week because I've been trying to get to, to know the owner of the restaurant. He's been in business now there for just about a year. And I remember when I first met him, I said, hey, my name's Michael. I'm a pastor down at Genesis. We do events a lot. I'll definitely, you know, use you and pizza and the food and stuff for our events. He's like, hey, that would be great. So I'm in there at least once, if not twice a week. Been doing this for a year. I'm always I'm saying, hey, how you doing? How's the family? How are things going? Because he forgot my name, it was always like, hey, buddy, what's up? And he mixes it up on occasion. He's like, hey, pal, good to see you. I'm like, well, today's pal, next week will be buddy. Something amazing happened this week. I walked in, and he said, hey, Michael. And I kind of looked around. I was like, there's got to be someone else in here because he's never called me by my name. And I was just so taken back because my thought quickly went, how did he know my name? Because it was a year ago. I don't reintroduce myself. Hey, actually, my middle name's buddy. My first is Michael, but feel free to use either. He said, hey, Michael. And I was so encouraged because he either had to look at a credit card or figure out what is this guy's name who keeps coming in. And you know what question he asked me? He didn't ask me a question that stumped me or was some theological or apologetic type of question. He said, hey, Michael, how are things going down the street? And I was, I didn't tear up at the moment, but <laughs> when he asked me that, I was like, really? You want to know how things are going down the street? Oh, man, let me, it's awesome. God's doing some great things down there, and I've invited him to come. I was so excited. The question he had for me is, how are things going with you? And what I would challenge you with, 
Are you actually ready to answer that question? The question of what difference is God making in your church? What difference is God making in your life? Because that's the kind of questions people are going to ask you. No one is going to come to you and be like, well, clearly I won't say no one. People have questions. Generally speaking, the questions people have are, what's your testimony? What's your story? What difference is God making in your life? And Paul says, be ready. Because if you're a gracious, salty person, the questions will come. Why will they come? Because no one else talks like that. But if you're that person, man, you are making the most of every opportunity to be used by God to hopefully win some for God. I really want you to think about your upcoming week. Every opportunity. I'm not just talking about that big moment. You're going to have that big conversation. I'm talking about the the interactions that you just have in casual and passing, that email that you just might send, whatever it might be, every opportunity is an opportunity to be used by God to win someone for God. Every month I send Stephen Drucker, the owner of this building, a check for rent. And every month for the past three years, he gets a handwritten note from me saying, hey, Stephen, just want to let you know, still really excited to be here. We're still really thankful to be able to use the building. Thanks for working with us. It's so repetitive, but I say the same thing. I don't just send him a check. I could. It's just a business transaction to him, but to me it's not. Why? Because every opportunity, including a letter, I don't even know if he reads, but it's an opportunity. Would you view your day as an opportunity to be used by God to reach people for God? Because Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time, that means you'll depend on him. You'll depend on Jesus. And it means that you would engage the community, the world around you. Now we come to uh, the last uh, 11 verses. And we're not covering all of these verses. But it's really interesting when you read Colossians uh, uh, verses 7 through 18. It's kind of a typical ending to Paul's letter. And it's sometimes easy to just read and be like, well, it's just a list of names. And he's saying, well, say hello to that person and say hi to that person. But what I love about what Paul does is he finishes off his letter in Colossians uh, is in these 10 or so verses, I learn the third and final principle of if I'm all Jesus all of the time, all of me, all of the time, a life dependent, On Jesus, it's a life of engaging other people with Christ. And then secondly, or thirdly, it's a life that is lived in the context of community with others who love Jesus. As you read 7 through 18, what screams out to me, what jumps out to me, is for Paul, he was not a lone ranger. He was not like this solo guy just doing it by himself. Paul had immersed himself in the context of community. He didn't didn't go it by himself. If you are going to be all of you, all of the time, why? Because Jesus is worthy of it. You will have to do that in the context of community, of a community of people who love Jesus as well. Why? So you can encourage them and be encouraged. Why? So you can inspire people and allow others to inspire you. 
to challenge and be challenged, to comfort and be comforted. There is no such thing as a lone ranger. I can do it on my own, by myself, don't need anyone. It doesn't work. It's safe to say if Paul can't do it, well, I'm not even going to bother to try. He lived his Christian journey. His, he lived his walk with God, his relationship with Jesus in the context of community. And what I love about what Paul does in community is Paul is continually encouraging the community of Christians. Paul didn't kind of view the church as just like this business organization to be run. You do this, you do this, you do this. Paul just used every opportunity, not just in the world, but every opportunity he had, including the closing of a letter, to encourage people, to bless people, to serve people. Colossians 4.7, Tychius, he is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 8, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother. Uh, 12 through 13, Epaphras, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you. He goes on to talk about seven other people. All encouraging words. Now what I love, he didn't have to say squat about anything of these people. But Paul used every moment, every opportunity of, let me just say quickly about Tychus. Man, he's a dear brother. He's faithful. And let me say something about Onesimus. Man, what a faithful guy. Let me say something about Epaphras. He's, he's the guy that's wrestling for you. Can you imagine when those three in particular read this letter? Wow, thanks, Paul. You didn't, you didn't have to say that, but you took the time to do that. Paul lived in the context of community with others who loved Jesus. And in that context, he was always encouraging, always inspiring, always serving people in verbal speech as well as in written speech. Now, what does this look like for us to do this? Because I don't know about you, but I, I want Genesis to be the community where that's the norm. Where it is the norm that you are not just here on Sundays, but throughout the week, you're getting text, voicemail, email, one-on-one -on -one interactions of, hey, can I just tell you how much you've encouraged me? I, you're just such an inspiration. Like, can you imagine if that was the norm in this community? We just didn't coexist together. We just didn't kind of rub shoulders and make small talk, but we used our words every opportunity to just bless people like crazy. Two examples that just happened to me in the last 72 hours. We'll just call this person Bruce Sterling. <laughs> Sends me an email two days ago. The subject line reads, just got to say this to you, dot, dot, dot. And then the body of the email, thank you. This community has done a ton for me to help me and to let me be part of it. We are all blessed to enjoy being in a community at Genesis. Thank you for following God's leading to start this ministry. He didn't have to do that. It took him maybe all of 20 seconds to type that email, but I tell you what that did for me. One brother just took a few moments to pass along an encouraging word. 72 hours ago, we'll just hypothetically call this person John Elwell. John sends me an email. John is our treasurer here at Genesis, and we've exchanged some emails of just finances and some questions going on. 
And after John kind of answered some of the questions I had, he could have just ended the email by saying, well, I answered your questions. If you have any more, let me know, John. And to be honest, that's what happens with most email interactions. We don't take advantage of the opportunity to use our words to encourage, bless, inspire people. John finishes his email by saying, Finally, Michael Davis, I appreciate you and all you are doing. Be encouraged today because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks. Maybe it took him 10 seconds to put that sentence in there, but man, can you imagine if that was the norm? The everyday conversations taking place in the context of the Christian church, in this church. So every text, email, voicemail you leave, you might communicate your information, but you go one step further like Paul did. He didn't have to say those things. But he's like, Tyke is faithful guy. Onesimus, man, faithful brother. Epiphras, working hard for you guys. He's that guy that's just praying for you like crazy. Let it be said here. That it just, it just happens. That, that's what we do. Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. It's a life dependent on Jesus in prayer. Steadfast, watchful, thankful, and very specific. It's a life that is lived of just every opportunity. Every opportunity is an opportunity for me to be used by God to reach someone who's far from God. And lastly, it's a life that's lived in the context of community. No Lone Rangers, but what we do in this community is we're not just blowing smoke in people's face. We're not just telling them, oh, they need to hear this. And No, we are genuine in our affection. We are generous in our encouragement. Why? Well, because it blesses. Why? Because it inspires. Why? Because it encourages. Why? Because it's honoring to God. Why? All of me, all of the time. Because Jesus is worthy of it. Read this quote one last time. The Lord's everything is worthy of our everything. Jesus became nothing so that we might have everything. Because of the gospel, we've come to see that he alone is worthy to receive our everything. Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. I opened with this question. We finished, does he have you? Does he have all of you? Does he just have part or does he have all of you? And does he have you all of the time? He's worthy of all of you all of the time. And he showed us how we can live that life out, very practically speaking. Today, as we finish our Colossians series, we celebrate communion like we do every Sunday. But today, as you would come up, if you're a Christian, I really want you to come up today with just an attitude and a posture of humility and gratitude of Jesus. I can only stand at this table and take these elements because you gave everything. Because you gave everything. And so as you would come, you take the bread and you dip it in the wine or juice and it's just our way to remember that he literally gave everything so that we could have everything. Life with God, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, 
meaning, purpose, significant value. We could have it all because Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. And if today you're not a Christian, if today you're here and you're hearing for the first time who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, my challenge to you is today is the day you place your faith in Jesus. And you don't live your life one more day apart from God. You start living your life with God, not through your works, but through Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're here and you've never placed your faith, that faith journey can begin now. And it's just with a confession of Jesus, I trust that you are God. I trust that you're the one who makes me right with God. And you receive by faith Christ into your heart.